Well, we are getting to the end of 2 Timothy. And as a matter of fact, this morning, it's a famous passage. You may have recognized those words from verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. Uh, these are the last words of Paul. In a sense, there's some few passages, le- a few verses left that we'll be looking at after this. But in a sense, this is his summary of his life. This is his final words, uh, kind of looking back. He's not quite on his deathbed, but he's close to being executed. Probably will uh, be executed by decapitation. Uh, Roman citizens didn't get to be crucified, so he'll probably be killed that way. But he says his last words, passing on to his young son in the faith, Timothy. A pastor. So this idea of famous last words, I thought for a moment it would be good um, as we think about famous words. What were some famous last words by people said? And so I looked at all kinds, Christian, non-Christians. I was going to read a few of them to you, uh, some famous last words. Um, first, uh, i read you is from Karl Marx, right? So um, he said, this was the words that he said. Actually, a nurse came in and said, do you have any words you want to say before you die? And this is what he said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. That's interesting, isn't it? Sort of sad. Uh, Harriet Tubman, right? The Underground Railroad. Swing low, sweet chariot. What a sweet thought, right? Probably an old Negro hymn they sang on the Underground Railroad all the time. It's notoriously sang by our African-American brothers. So what a sweet word. Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin said, this is pretty famous, just a dying man could do nothing easy. Uh, that was an interesting thought. And I thought this was funny. Uh, this is from a, a, undoubtedly an a infamous murderer in the state of Utah. He was before the firing squad, and uh, they said, Do you have it? what is your last request? And he said, bring me a bulletproof vest. <laughs> I doubt they honored that one. Um, and then uh, this was, uh, interesting, Leonardo da Vinci. He said, uh, his last words are known to be, um, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Meaning like the Mona Lisa wasn't enough. Interesting window into his heart and life. And I don't know if I have this one, Pistol Pete, the famous, uh, uh, no, I don't, but Pistol Pete, maybe the famous basketball player who died, I think his last words, I'm not sure, as right as he was dying or what, was uh, he says, I feel great. If you know, he collapsed of a heart attack playing basketball, but he had come to faith uh, later in his life. So, uh, but then here's a couple of Christians, um, famous Christians here. The first you'll see John Bunyan, right, Pilgrim's Progress. He says, weep not for me, but for yourselves, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he, though the meditation of his, through the mediation of his blessed son receives me, though a sinner, we shall meet to sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy. David Brainerd, who was a I don't know if you've read his um, uh, biography, but um, was a missionary here to the American Indians. He wrote, I'm going into the eternity, and it is sweet to me to think of eternity. The endlessness of it makes it sweet. But oh, what shall I say of the future of the wicked? The thought is too dreadful. So even to the end, he was mindful of the lost. Such a compassionate thought. And then uh, Richard Baxter, an English martyr, theologian, one of my famous of the English, one of my favorite, not famous, my famous favorite. Um, He said, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. So even though believers, we do die in pain sometimes, the peace transcended it. So this is Paul's uh, last words. And, um, but what's cool, I want to remind you this morning, what's cool about it is that um, we know a lot about Paul. And so we can kind of get, he's written numerous letters, and we can get a window into what do these words mean? What did he mean by them? What did he not mean by them? Which is important. 
because they're pretty lofty in many ways. And uh, it'll help us understand and have insight to his words. But just in case you were wondering this morning that um, if these uh, words are for you, you can kind of think, and we've said you can't do this the whole time, but you're like, well, this is just him thinking of himself as a minister, and he's helping another minister, and so his last words might be different. But notice what he says in verse 8. I don't know if it's up there right now. It will be in a minute. But in verse 8, he says, not only to me, this reward that's for writing, not only to me, but also all. Who love is appearing. He thought of himself as a pastor among all the believers, among the same, anyone who would love is appearing. So hopefully what we'll do this morning is that we'll look at um, kind of, I, I sense, and for those of you who have been studying this passage this week, my sense is I get from the passage uh, of Paul uh, overall overarching is, a, is sort of a challenge, right, to this young, uh, to his succession uh, to his successor in Timothy. There's a challenge by his last words. I think there's that. But there's also an element of celebration to the end. And so kind of keep those two words in your mind. I'll try to draw that out each time. He's, he's celebrating and he's kind of challenging. I think that's what we kind of ought to hear from it. And we'll look at the verses really do break down into um, the present, what's going on in his life in verse 6, the past in verse 7, and, um, and then verse 8, the future. So we'll look at his last words and how he thought about it. Uh, maybe a challenge and celebration from the present, past, and the future. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you, um, would you grant us these few moments that we, would, we might consider our lives? And it's really difficult, especially with young people in here and youth and college. Uh, for some, they're older, it's easier to think about your last words. But oh, is it so important, God, for us to think about uh, what it will be like when the end draws near for each of us. And our lives matter now. So grant us insight and even put in ourselves in, the sh- in, in Paul's shoes at some level. But to see uh, the beauty of what it is you've accomplished in his life. And may it rest on us with challenge and with celebration. And would you... Um, Speak to our minds, would you speak to our hearts and and our hands, that we would come away with things that we would long to change as well. So with that, we pray. Amen. All right, we'll start with verse 6 and uh, the present. And so his last words, he begins there, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things there. First, you'll notice that he's like, I'm already being poured out. He's, he's realizing this time for sure he's pretty clear he's going to die. He alludes to the fact in, uh, earlier that, that uh, the Holy Spirit's kind of made it plain to him. This is his death. He's been arrested before. He's in prison. He's in Rome. And uh, we know, you know Timothy is here in Ephesus. But he's, he knows that his time is, is coming. So he's, I'm already being poured out. In a sense, I have been poured out, and I'm being poured out even now, and I'm about to be poured out all the way. Excuse me. That was really clumsy. Um, but then, uh, also, but I want you to see the idea of just being poured out as uh, a drink offering. Now, you see that. Now, remember, Paul's a Jew, 
And so this is some Old Testament language for him. He, he's at the end. He remembers his heritage, and he's thinking of the temple and the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were there, the offerings that God they made. Now, Jesus has fulfilled all the offerings. There's no need to make them anymore. He's the final sacrifice. He's the final offering. But he remembers those, and he uses that imagery to kind of describe, which he had done that as well in Philippians 2. But here he's using that. And so the idea, I think, to hear what he's thinking about presently, he's facing reality, but presently he's thinking, my life is a sacrifice. It's not my own. He's thinking about an altar-type thought. My life is not mine. And here at the end, it's still not mine. And that's the way he's thinking about it. I'm being poured out. I'm a sacrifice. And um, it's interesting, right? That makes sense. That's consistent the way Paul talks. You remember what he said in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. I mean, you know that passage? So he, he thought, my life's not my own. He told the Corinthian church, I've been bought with a price. Remember what he told the Roman church, but, uh, and therefore in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, right? Keep being, that's a weird uh, paradigm, a conundrum, a living sacrifice. That daily I am not my own. My life is not at. A living sacrifice, you may every day want to crawl off and say, my life's mine. No, my life is at the altar. If I'm a follower of Christ, it belongs to God. My life is a as a sacrifice, and he's thinking of it all the way to the end. Now, the drink offering is a little, is, is, is some rich imagery there, particularly the drink offering, and it was a part of the ritual of the, of the temple before. Uh, I think it was inaugurated in Genesis 34, where uh, a drink offering was first seen when Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And so maybe that's what he's thinking, right? It's like, I was a murderer of Christians, and now my life has really changed. I don't know. It also, the drink offering was, uh, was, was done in the burn offering, which they would kind of go through three parts of the burn offering where they would burn the animal and burn it, but then they would put a, uh, put a meal on it, some grain, and mix it with, uh, with uh, an oil and, and mix that, and that would help the smell of it and make an aroma. And then the drink offering was to literally pour the wine upon it, the drink offering at the end. Maybe he's thinking of the final sacrifice, of the, of the sacrifice. But we know that the drink offering was poured out. It was symbolic of blood, and it would bring a sweet aroma. That was the idea. It would make the offering a sweet aroma to God. And that's what it would do. So all those are in play. But here's probably the most is just thinking blood and sacrifice. And as he comes to the end, as he's about to die, I think he's mindful of the one who's died for him, whose blood has also been spilled. Jesus was the ultimate drink offering poured out for us. And so he's presently thinking about that. That's what's going on with me today. I am already being poured out. He senses that. And it's clear to him. But then notice that he says um, uh, that he's also facing his reality well. And the time of my departure has come. I wonder if dying well is a lost art. I'd love to process that. Some of our doctors that can really tell you, what, what's it look like? How are, how are people dying? They die well. Do believers die well? Um, now, so, so, uh, it's been an interesting conversation for me and my father. My father, uh, many of you know, five or six months ago, was diagnosed with melanoma. And we, at that point, we thought he had about six months to 18 months. To live, and so he and I began to process death. And, uh, he has since then taken two rounds of um, uh, immunotherapy, and it's working, and the tumors are shrinking, so his longevity may be longer. But that's not where we were 
two or three weeks ago and the processing of, of death. And one of the things, you know, my father in humility says, is it okay to be scared? Of course it is. You want to know why? Because we weren't made for death. And death is scary. But I think what it means to die well is eventually, though, if the Christian can, if they have time to think about it, that remember Paul has told them in the verses to be sober-minded, that there's, a, there's some sort of sober-mindedness that comes that begins to see the fullness of it. And notice his language is departure. It's not a finality. It's not an end. I'm moving on to something. Right? Isn't that what Psalm 90 tells us? I mean, our life is about 80 or maybe 90 years. But we live for the eternity, and this eternity is longer than this breath that we have. Don't live our lives only for this 90 years when there's an eternity that you and I will depart to. So Paul thinks of it as I'm going on. I'm moving. It's not an end for me. It's a departure from what I'm doing now. And so that's the sober-mindedness that the Christian has to fight to get to. That's our hope. I, many of you know, may, Paul, may know Paul Anderson. I think he's our oldest member. He's a little over 90. Uh, interesting. He is, uh, he's not here today. He hasn't been able to come through the pandemic. He's actually had a surgery this week. I was visiting him yesterday. Um, interesting fact about him. His grandmother saw, saw Civil War soldiers march through her yard because he's the youngest. He's 90, and he was the youngest of 12, and then his mom was the youngest of 10. It's crazy to think to know somebody who's two generations away from the Civil War. But, I mean, I, yeah, Civil War, right? So anyway, he's older, but I saw him yesterday walked in and he had something to have a surgery for. And it's like, oh, you had a rough day, Paul. And he's like, I'll be all right. I know where I'm going. Oh, I could have wept. I wanna... Paul, I told him, I was like, I've been looking at this passage. You don't know how much that means to me. What are you just saying? So the departure is that he, some level, Paul is facing reality. It's present for him, Okay. And the Christians, we have the, we have the reason to do it. It's a departure for us. And lots, we can't go into that, but do you see that? So, this is, this is, so a couple of things, the challenge here. I think there's a challenge here that for us today. Do you see your life as a sacrifice that it's not your own? Do you think of your life as not belonging to you, but belonging to God? From every part. So my life's not my own at work. My life is not my own in my family. My life is not my own as I encounter this community. My life is not my own. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Do you see your life? That's a challenge. Timothy, your life's not your own. Live as a sacrifice, a drink offering, being poured out. Listen, I, I know many of you have a day-to-day what it feels like to be poured out. We can resonate with the idea of just being worn out and poured out, but our lives are not our own. But then also, the, I think the celebration is that when you live for something bigger than yourself, it's rewarding. I mean, it... Paul's like, I'm poured out, but it's almost like, because he's going to say, I fought a good fight. There's a celebration. The very, um, the very thing you and I were made for is to live for others and live a sacrifice. And that's, that's why the departure is exciting and, and to live in between now and then. Do you realize that? We weren't made to live primarily thinking about ourselves. That's why the, the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. We were made by a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that out of their love for each other, they consider each other. That's what you and I were made for. And so Paul is saying, it's, my departure has come, and it's better to live the way he's designed us, which is to live for others and God. That's his present. Next, the past. So then he transitions in verse 7, and so he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. 
Um, I don't know when you first read those, that language uh, in some of our men's study, first thing we said this week was, that's heavy language. That's not tiptoeing through the tulips language, is it? It's not cruising down the, uh, the, uh, a country, a red dirt road, you know, uh, singing country music. That seems some, there's some heaviness, strong words, fight, finished, kept the fates, I've guarded it. So, um, but here's the idea, if you look at it, there's lots of thoughts, but probably the first two, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, those are probably both, the race definitely, and the fight, don't think armor of God fight, think fighting in, in an Olympic type, uh, athletic thinking. Uh, some think that that's pretty, and that makes the most sense to me, that it was a, a fight. You're fighting in the, athlete, in the athletes, fighting to get through, fighting the fight to finish. And so uh, the first two are, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and that's kind of a summary. Then he summarizes what he was doing by, I've kept the faith. Those two kind of feed into the last one of keeping the faith. But let's at least look at the fault and the good fight. Um, I have fought the good fight. When you read that, I don't know if you read it, I, I, my first thought is, come on, man. Did you really fight all the way, all the time? Do y'all, do y'all not think that? Because like, I think about my life, I was like, I didn't fight real good this week when I was yelling at one of my kids, and I didn't really fight real good this week when I was... That's what I feel when I read it. But notice he didn't comment on how he fought. He said, I fought. But what did he fight? The good fight. The fight that was good. He didn't say, I fought the fight. Well, I fought. And he didn't tell how he fought it. But what did he, he was fighting a fight that was worth fighting. That's different. The fight is good. It's a good fight. And it was a fight for faith. The fight is worth fighting. Now, when you think about that, I think this is where I don't want you to go, oh, only the way the preacher fights and the thing the preachers fight for, right? That's not, it would be the proper application, right? Because this is, can refer to all believers. But here's the way to think about what you as a human being, and then as a follower of Christ, one who's been saved and as a follower of Christ. You are an image bearer and a child of God. All right? That's who you are. And then the greatest commandment is to, under those is to love God and love people. Be an image bearer in how you love God and you love people. An image bearer and a child of God. Love God, love people. That's kind of the broad categories. And under those, we all have roles that he's given us as human beings to walk in as child of God. Right? So, fatherhood, that's a role. Motherhood, that's a role. Under, being an image bearer and a child of God or a daughter of God. Under, love God and love others more than yourself. You live that role under that kind of broad, overarching purposes of what it means to be a Christian human being. You think father and mother are big roles in our ministry in God's mind? Do you? Of course they are. Tons of raising that. So you think about it in that way. Tons of passages about family and raising children. So it, otherwise, if I'm only doing my work, you better quit your jobs and ban your kids and only go do what I'm doing for my profession. So then um, 
Also, think about other roles that we all have. Are you a worker? Does work matter to God? As a matter of fact, it did. He's a worker. He made work. Work was before the fall. You'll be working in heaven. Vocation to bear his image. How do you bear your image as a worker? So remember, the verse right before this in verse 5, the last words Paul tells him tells Timothy, he says, fulfill your ministry. And he says, so I, I'm being poured out right now, and I've fought a good faith. Let me tell you, I have done it. And guess what? All of you have a, have a ministry to bear the image of God and to be a child of his, function underneath his love, love God and love people in all of your roles of ministry, rule and subdue the earth, raise children and lift them up into the world. Guess what? Also parts of that, if you're a follower of Christ, you're also an evangelist. It is your part to be a part of the kingdom going forth, to bring mercy and justice to those who don't have it. That's part of your ministry as well. Guess what? It's also a part of your ministry to be a, uh, an approved workman of the word, to handle the scriptures. That's what it is. All things that are under what it means to be an image bearer who's a child of God. And so Paul's saying, I have fought the good fight, particularly here. Think about, I've fought, and think about the things he's asking Timothy. If we were to go back, I didn't do it, I'm going by memory here. But if we were to go back and think about the things he was telling Timothy to fight for, right? He told him, hey, remember the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ was born. Remember, fight for that. Keep remembering that. He gives him all these truths to remember. He tells him, speak and correct those who are false teachers, but do it gently and with patience. Jeez, that's difficult. I'd rather just hammer them. No, love them. Do it gently. Do it with complete patience. That's a fight. He tells them to defend against, against horrible teachers who are prostituting the name of Christ in his resurrection. He tells them, endure suffering because you'll be persecuted. Guess what? All of those things happen in the roles that you have. As parents, as workers, he's calling them to do those and those take place. Fight this. This fight is worth fighting. Protect the truth. It's a good fight. And he's saying, I fought. I've hung in there. And then notice he says he's finished. Goal. He said, I fought the fight. I finished the race. There was a finish line. There was a goal, right? It might remind me of when he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, I, I buffet my body to make it a slave and I box not aimlessly boxing at the air, right? I mean, we, we were made for a purpose. There's something we're going for. There's a, there's, a, there's a purpose and a line to cross. It's not just open-ended, right? The glory of God and his mission to reach the nations and for us to be image bearers in all places of our life, there is a goal and a place to go. There's an end in mind. And he's saying, I don't just do it aimlessly. In a sense, there is a line. Isn't that great? You were made, to, didn't it feel good to cut your grass when you complete? Something started. I like doing it as a pastor because I don't get to see a lot of uh, tasks when you work with people done. But boy, when I cut my grass, I can see it's not complete, it's not complete, it's not complete, but it's getting more, it's getting more. It's complete because we were made for completion, right? And he's saying move towards the finish line in that. Um, that's what he's calling them to. It's a, I think golf could be a, a great lens for life. I love to play golf. And uh, one of the sayings in golf uh, is, is that it's not, uh, there's a couple of sayings. One is not how you drive, it's how you arrive, meaning you can hit it anywhere, but you've got to make sure you putt well when you get on the, you've got to finish well when you get on the green. Uh, but then also they, they say, there's a saying in golf that they don't ask how you got here, they just ask how many, meaning what was your score on the hole? They don't care where you went, what was your score? Did you finish the hole? How that, the question around that is I recently... Um, <laughs> I had the opportunity to play with one of the past club champions at, at uh, Danville Country Club. I was playing with him. If I played him ten times, he'd beat me nine and a half. That's how good he is, all right? I can't usually play with him, but I can keep up a little bit. On this one particular day recently, he played with us, and, um, and I was 
playing well for me. And I hit it right down the middle and hit it on the greens. Two play. It was playing, was playing great for me. Uh, got it under par. And he is hitting it way over there and then way over there and then knock down shot underneath the trees and on the green. We get to the end of the score. I had a four. What'd you have? Four. Nothing was so. <laughs> what? But that's life, right? Sometimes in life we hit it down the middle and we finish holes this way. But sometimes I go over in the rough and hit a few trees and come out, but I finish with the same score. That's the Christian for the Christian. We finish the line. We crossed it. And then lastly, he kept the faith. And um, this sort of has a, I think a twofold. It's summarizing what he just previously fighting the good fight and finishing the race. But let's think of it in a twofold way. I, I think from studying and looking at it, most most. Most think this. One, um, he personally kept believing that Christ was who he said he was. And all throughout the book, you'll remember, he pauses and he'll go through long lists of the gospel and who God is to remind Timothy. Timothy, do this, but remember this. And for you and I, yes, behavior matters, but the real fight of faith is to fight to believe to be strong in the grace, to remember who Christ is. But then also I think the other part of the fight are keeping the faith. And the word there is to guard is probably, uh, from my looking at it, is that uh, also that he, he, preser- he fought to preserve the truths of the faith. And so Paul, when he writes, there's a lot of kind of not either or, kind of both ends to his sentences. And this is, I think it's saying that I also fought for the true doctrines that we know to be true, that what Christ's teaching was. So he fought to preserve the faith. And um, it matters what's taught about who God is. And, but in the end, he said, I have fought the life of faith. I've continued to believe. And I've defended what I believe, what the truth is. So... You may ask, wrapping that up, that section, was Paul arrogant? Did he really believe he did all this? I don't think he's arrogant. The passage tells us he's not. Because, look, he didn't think of himself better than other believers, right? He's like, I believe in his appearing, and there's others who believe. But is he arrogant? Is he like, I fought, and do you feel? He's not. He's a, he's a real guy. Here's, here's why we know, because these other teachings tell us that, what he's written. We, we're getting his summary sentence in this moment, but he's not arrogant, right? This is the same guy who murdered Christians. You do believe that. He killed Stephen, one of our first deacons. He was a murderer of Christians. Can you imagine me at the end of your life and still saying, before I came to know Christ, I still was a guy who killed people. I don't think he's arrogant. He, I mean, he, he tells us in Romans 7, he's like, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. He's laying this into his heart. He didn't always make every decision right, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he said, I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. Yet I labored more than anyone, but it wasn't me, it was Christ that was in me. Colossians 1, he says, I struggle with all of his power, or uh, power that works with all his strength that so powerfully works within me. He's like, I know that I participate, I fought, but in the end, Paul knew if I make it to the finish line, it was God. 
And do you know his famous passage in 1 Timothy 2 when he said this? Look at what he said. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. Listen to this. Let me just read it to you. I wish I had it on the screen. I don't. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ. The saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as his example to those who believe in in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible God. He finished with a doxology when he thought about who he was and that God would somehow choose to use him for his own fame and glory. So Paul is not bragging for his life. As a matter of fact, his hope, the fact that he finished and what 1 Timothy tells us He's trusting in the greatest fighter of all time. The one who won every battle. The greatest runner who was out front, who set the pace and finished perfectly. Jesus fought Satan. How did he fight? He fought Satan in 40 days and 40 nights. He was a fighter on our behalf, something Adam couldn't do. Adam gave in the first time he encounters the serpent, but not Jesus for 40 days and for 40 nights. He fought. He conquered sin and death. He lived a life we couldn't live. He kept fighting. He met the righteous requirement of the law. He sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he was fighting to the end. All the way to the end, right? Jesus finished the race all the way to the end. From, from the front of the pack, he turned. Did it, remember when it says, and he turned his heart towards Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem. Why? To finish the race, to go all the way to the cross. He's, he went there. He could have at any moment taken a legion of angels and been fine for him to quit the race on our behalf. But he doesn't. He goes all the way, all the way to the cross, all the way. And he, did he keep the faith? He doesn't have faith. Jesus doesn't have faith. He's the object of our faith. But was he the one who was vulnerable on our behalf? Faith has a vulnerability to it. Was he vulnerable on our behalf? Did he commit himself to the Father and say, have your way with me on their behalf? He preserved our faith. He kept our faith and validated it. And what were his last words? It is finished. That's our last words. Paul is making his statement of last words and the true utmost last words of Christ. The only reason any of us will make it to the finish line is because he made it and he brought us through. I feel like we ought to sing, he will hold me fast. Something like that right now, he will keep me. The only reason we will fight and have kept fighting is because he made me fight and kept me fighting. Isn't that true? The only reason the faith has been guarded and kept by me is because he has kept me. So within that security, Paul says, I fought the good fight. He's looking at his life and said, Jesus kept me. He knew he was a sinner. He knew it the whole time. So henceforth is laid up for him a crown. And he finishes with this, this idea of just, um, if you'll remember, those of you studying Timothy, right, it starts in, in the chapter, chapter 4, it starts with, 
heaviness and the charge with wrath and the judgment that he will judge the living and the dead. But then it finishes with this reward. Verse 8, it finishes with a sweetness of a hope here in verse 8. And he, and, he, and he finishes with this great joy. And it's not, notice that the passage, it's not this future for him. It's not just any crown. It's a crown of righteousness. And so here, you know, there's, there's theological debate over what is the reward here? Will he be rewarded for the faithfulness he's had? Because there is a sense biblically that people are rewarded. The saints are rewarded when they get to heaven for the crowns that they've achieved in their faithfulness. It's not their standing to get into heaven. It's not how they got there. But God will take joy and we will give an account at this judgment seat. But no matter what your crowns are, you'll still cast them at the feet when you get them to that. Or is this the righteousness, the crown that is Christ's righteousness, that is all of our crown, that has been given to us by faith, and we have this crown of righteousness and we will wear it when we get to heaven. Which one is it? It doesn't matter. Because there is a reward. It is a reward. And look who it, here's why it matters the most. Look who it comes from. It comes from a righteous judge. It will have its meaning and its value and its worth because of the one who gives it to us. And so if it's, eternal, if it's the righteousness of Christ, which he does give us, and that's what this crown is, then he, the righteousness, gives it to you, and you're covered in it. If it's the, if it's the works that we have done that don't earn heaven, but we, we, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, then the righteous judge gives you those crowns, that's okay too. But either way, all of them will be laid down because we are under the crown of the righteousness that is of Christ. And that's beautiful. And so you notice who is rewarded and those that fought the good fight, those that finish, run the lace and finish, who are they rewarded? But it's also those who love, and notice the passage says that love is appearing. And it could be um, the appearing. What is the appearing? It probably is talking about Jesus' second coming. There's debate around that, if it's whether he's already appeared or he's for coming. Notice that it says the day it's coming. So it's probably talking about the future, judgment day, and his appearing. But notice, the question is, do you love the appearing? That's the point. Do you love this appearing? And by the way, the Bible is full of us looking back at the cross and that's motivating us or looking to the future grace that we have and that's motivating. But either one, do you love the appearing of who Christ is? That's a quality. You may need to ask that question. Do I love his appearing? Do I think about that? If you don't, you may not be a Christian because Christians move towards the idea of loving his appearing, that I want him to come. I know that it would be better for him to be, and we long for it to come. That's the Christian's desire. That's what the Christian wants. And so how does that look like in your life? What's the challenge to that? Let me at least say, say this. I'll use a light example. Every, I'm sorry about golf twice. Every year I have a golf trip. with I'm on my 15th year with some of my closest friends. I have to admit, I bore, it's borderline idolatry. I look forward to it so much. But let's use that as an example. We could use any other example. But that thing is on the dates now. That day is on the calendar. It's September 26th through 29th, in case you want to know. And already, I think about it way more than I should. Man, I got to get in shape. We play 36 holes a day. I got to start preparing for those three days of just sometimes 45. What clothes might I, new duds I might could get this year and forth? What clubs might I have? Maybe I could ask for that club for my birthday so I can be ready for my. 
And I have to confess something that we, as a matter of fact, I got a thread yesterday, just somebody of that group saying a picture of our trip, like it's coming, and it's five months, six months away. We actually have a phrase one month out called, we're in the bubble. And what that means is, wrap yourself in bubble wrap. Don't do anything stupid to get hurt in between now and then so that you can't come on the trip. So I don't, I quit running. I quit moving sideways. I don't want to mow out of knee. I look more careful when I go down these steps. I don't use sharp objects in that last month in case I cut my hand for golf. It's embarrassing but true. But folks, that's the way we ought to live for that day for his appearing. We begin to say yes and no and our lives change because there is a good day coming. And we adjust and we think about it. That's what I think Paul is calling us to do. That's who will be there, those who look forward to that, those who orchestrate their life according to that appearing. Their work, their parenting, their, all of their life, they orchestrate to that. So I want to finish. I, I've gone long, but we're going to finish with an application. I want to help you run the race today. We as a church, part of our job is to help you run this race and to fight the good fight. And you may remember that our uh, initiatives, one of our initiatives is um, uh, we have two initiatives for our Grace for the City. You should see those here. We have Mobilize and Invest, and under our Mobilize, Personally, Corporately, and Invest, those are that. We've been going over it. But I want to highlight for the summer and see the Personally Invest there, Mobilize. Part of our mobilization, part of our initiative for our Grace for the City is that you as individuals and families are to think about your life on mission here within our church over the next five years. Want to see the gospel go forward where you live, work, and play. And one of those first steps to doing that is learning to be just hospitable. Hospitality is a great, a great way to do that. And so we're going to do some training this summer over hospitality. That will be coming out and what we'll be doing to help think about that and what it may be. But we've come up with a goal that we think will be a great goal for, um, for Grace Church and um, to think about it. Now, we define hospitality as um, a thoughtful and generous opening of your life and home to others. And um, our goal, you'll see here in the next slide, is this is that we want to make it a goal from 5.30 to 8.14 for 10 weeks as a church to see if we could have 300 hospitable events as a church, meaning you and your life and where you are. Now, that breaks down to our, we have about 70-something units that attend here. It's about four piece for the summer. And let me define that for you. A hospitable event is what we mean by that would be to be um, a non-grace person. You, as a grace person, are engaged with a non-grace person in your, where you live, work, or play, and you have a shared experience with them. You don't have to talk about Jesus. You don't have to do anything beyond that. Just that you have a shared experience with them. You do something with them. Examples of that could be you shared a meal. You had them over with a neighbor or friend. You had ice cream on your front porch with another family. You had a game night. Maybe you do a play date at the park. Maybe go to the Brass Band Festival and just meet them there and talk to them. But some kind of thoughtfulness about towards hospitality and inviting people into your life. We're going to study more about it, but that's our goal. Just to aim at something. And by the way, the, the scriptures do tell us about numbers. When you start to study Acts, it would tell you that 3,000 believed on this day. Numbers aren't the end-all, be-all, but numbers seem to measure things in the Bible. And so we want to uh, ask you to do that. We're going we're gonna, to, um, God's not against counting, and uh, he counts a lot of his missional engagements, as I said. 
And uh, the number pushes us outside our comfort zone and helps us to trust him. So we're going to give that a try, all right? It'll be a broad definition of hospitable, and we're going to have a tracking system for you to turn it in and hopefully turn it into the offering or send it into the email or This Week at Grace. But that's the goal. Why? We're pushing this. Why? It's a, way, a fight worth fighting, right? It's a, good, it's a good race to race and to be a part of. So that's it. Let's... Um, Pray that lands on you in a way of hopefulness, not in burden, because of the one who's already run the race before us, the one who was truly hospitable to us and brought us in. Let's pray. God, as we finish and sing, um, would, you, would you help us as your people to um, uh, respond first and foremost with the thankfulness that Jesus, who you are, and Uh, and what you've accomplished. Would you help us to see the world through the lens of all that you've accomplished for us? And Father, help us. um, I pray that we would all one day be able to just to quote. We don't need some funny last words. That we could just quote and say in our own hearts basically the same thing to be true about us. That we fought the good fight. That Father, we've finished the race and we've kept the faith. Would you mercifully grant that to us as a church? So for your fame and for your glory, I ask these things. I pray, I pray even for this goal um, that it would be stretching. And as we try to live as a, as a church, grace for the city, uh, may you move us out in faith to do this. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We can go over 300, by the way. That's okay. Will hold me fast when the tempter would.